Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts Fortnightly Podcast. Uh, given the last few years have proved it possible to disagree over such ostensibly clear-cut things as the answer to one plus one, the morality of setting fire to policemen, whether science is racist, whether it's acceptable in polite society to behead teachers for showing cartoons, rare outbreaks of unity when they occur are special, they should be savoured. Uh, we might then thank the government and the pensions regulator for bringing almost the whole pensions industry together in response to the regulator's new powers afforded it by the Pension Schemes Act. Everyone is most interested in them. I think it would be fair to say a lot of people are concerned about them. Uh, past attempts by the regulator to reassure the industry have gone some way to allaying those concerns, but not all the way, if the people we've spoken to are any guide. Our guest today will, I'm sure, take another shot at uh, quieting the critics, we hope at least, after which we'll be moving on to discuss the regulator's new code of practice, the omnibus tome that combines 10 of the 15 existing codes of practice into one supposedly swallowable document. Far from a simple cut-and-paste job, it does also introduce a range of new requirements covering climate change, stewardship administration, cybersecurity, and a number of other areas. We'll take a look at what's new and discuss perhaps whether more help will be provided to trustees of smaller schemes in particular to help them meet the new administrative burden. And then finally, we will take a quick look at what's next on TPR's agenda for the year. Eagle-eyed, or rather bat-eared listeners will have spotted the running theme here. Uh, our guest is well-placed to update us on all things TPR, for he is the Regulator's Executive Director of Regulatory Policy, Analysis and Advice. Uh, David Fares is here, and uh, thank you very much for joining us. We will uh, begin then with the new powers afforded by the Pension Schemes Act. We've probably covered this about once a week every week since the Act finally made it through Parliament. Clause 107 is of particular concern, in particular because it makes a criminal offence any action or inaction deemed to have reduced the chance of members enjoying their benefits in full. Uncertainty as to how this will be applied has not been quite cleared up by TPR's guidance and draft policy thus far, at least if the experts we've spoken to are any guide. The lack of clarity, they say, could adversely affect corporate activity. And only yesterday, for us that is, Tuesday for the rest of you, Aon partner John Harvey warned the stress could tip some trustees over the edge, and indeed has done so already. He reports having seen trustees cite the furore over the new powers as a contributory factor in their decision to resign. So we'll come on to some of those concerns in more detail. But David, to start off with, everyone knows, of course, that the regulator can issue guidance on how it implements the legislation. It can't change what might be flaws in the legislation itself. But when you saw the act in its final form, um, did you jump for joy or did you sort of pop some preemptive paracetamol in anticipation of a headache? Thanks, Benjamin. I mean, I, I think when you look at the Pension Schemes Act, there is a really strong suite of measures in there, both to act as deterrent from those who are jeopardising people's retirement savings, but also to enable us to act more efficiently, to gather information to help us with our inquiries in a much more efficient way. So as a package of measures, we're very pleased with the Pension Schemes Act. I recognise, as you said in the introduction, there are some concerns around uh, some aspects of the Pension Schemes Act, not least the introduction of the seven years uh, potential jail sentence for criminal activities. We, we recognise those concerns and the, the pensions minister recognised them and that's why he asked us to produce guidance on how we would operate them. He very much gave the direction that these are not intended to disrupt normal commercial activities and with our guidance we have tried to set out the instances where we would use those powers and where we think it would be inappropriate to do so because they're not following the intent of parliament. I think if it's okay I'll split these into the, the two principal areas so it's the effect on trustees and the effect on corporate activity. If we begin um, with the subject of trustees as I mentioned John Harvey of Aon said that he'd seen some trustees cited 
the uncertainty around it, you know, continuing uncertainty as a reason for some trustees looking to perhaps even go so far as, as resigning rather than face the uncertainty and the potential liability. Obviously, the guidance hasn't satisfied them so far. I mean, is there anything else then that the regulator can do or is planning on doing in the future which will add additional guidance or beef up the existing guidance to make them more sure of their position? So we haven't seen a robust evidential base that this is actually causing trustees to uh, want to stop being a trustee. Clearly, there are all sorts of reasons why people want to become a trustee and all sorts of reasons why people uh, stand down from that. So we haven't seen any strong evidence that the introduction of these new powers is, is doing that. But, you know, we have said that actually trustees that are doing the right things that are not jeopardizing members' benefits should have nothing to concern themselves with as a result of the introduction of these new powers. So clearly, people doing the right thing shouldn't have anything to fear by the introduction of Section 107. If I were to put their potential response to you, then it might be that it's, of course, people doing the right thing have nothing to fear from doing the wrong thing. It's whether they know and can know in advance that they are doing the right thing, when the measure, I think, is that it's action or reaction, which will eventually be deemed to have reduced the chance of getting members' benefits. I, I suppose their concern will be that they don't know, they can't know at the moment whether what they are doing is the right thing. I mean, is that a fair point or is the regulator covered that, do you think? So we, we have tried to set out uh, in our guidance some very clear examples of when we would take action and also where activities are part of normal commercial activities. You know, there are three steps to the process for us to bring an action against a trustee or an employer. And all all three of those steps have to be fulfilled for us to take action. And the evidence base is one which is quite strong. So there has to be, beyond reasonable doubt, proof that actually individuals breached all three elements of the the steps required for us to use the the, the particular power. And for my benefit and and for trustees' benefit, so... Beyond reasonable doubt here is defined as as being what? I mean, what, what steps put people beyond reasonable doubt? Well, this is a, a, a normal definition used in legislation. And if I contrast that with the when we issue contribution notices, then uh, it just has to be on the reasonable balance of probability that it's reasonable for us to issue that contribution notice. The evidential base, the burden, if you like, the hurdle that we have to overcome to use these criminal sanctions is significantly higher it is that it's beyond reasonable doubt. So these are really high thresholds for us to prosecute anyone. If we cover then some of the the concerns about corporate activity and and cognizant of what's been said about the the intent not being to change that, um, nevertheless, if there has been at least any uncertainty, there will will be an effect on it, whether the change was intended or not, I would would assume. It's been suggested to us uh, a few times that that we might see as a result uh, a sudden influx of clearance requests, for example, in order to make sure that what's being done is in line with the guidance of the legislation from people who are unsure it might otherwise be. Is the regulator sufficiently well-resourced to deal with this sudden influx? Do you expect a sudden influx and, and can you deal with them if you get them? Well, let's separate out two things here. First of all, there is no clearance process for the criminal sanctions. It's very clear that Parliament didn't intend for there to be a process where people could get a clearance from criminal prosecution. The clearance process does apply for contribution notices. And let me say quite clearly, we don't expect that to be used as a way of getting clearance from a criminal sanction by the back door. But people can come for clearance where they think the contribution notices could be in in scope to get clarity of whether what they're proposing uh, would cause concern for us. 
And on, on the contribution notices, um, we spoke to, to LCP partner, uh, Jonathan Camfield, who did suggest that there, there was a risk that these contribution notices could be triggered in quite a wide variety of situations. That was part of the reason he suggested that, that there might be more uh, clearance requests coming in. Um, so what reassurance can you give to people that, that the contribution notices will themselves be very specifically used? They won't end up being used more broadly than, than is perhaps anticipated. Well, uh, when we look to use our powers, we can choose either to use the the contribution notice power or the criminal sanctions, or we could use both. Clearly, we'll take account of the fact that if somebody has come forward to get clearance under a contribution notice, that might be a relevant fact for us to take into account in terms of whether we prosecute under the criminal sanctions. But it, it will be a relevant fact. It won't be a clearance process. Just picking up on your point around the volume of clearance requests, we're very used to having to prioritise, reprioritise our activities. We do have flexible resource. I think we demonstrated that very clearly during the early stages of the pandemic, how we reacted to the emerging picture. So if there is an uptick in, in terms of clearance applications, then we have the flexibility within our resourcing to prioritise and divert resources to that. Excellent. And just finally, then, on this subject, ARC uh, Pensions Law Partner, Jane Kodo, was one of the first, I think, to alert us to some of these the issues that we've been discussing. And, and she says that, and she's not the only person to say either, but has said that the, one of the, the issues, the lingering problem with this, with the uncertainty that does exist, is that it really does impact decision making for companies in financial distress. It can impact decisions taken to alleviate financial distress. And she says that there is no time to dither in these situations uh, we may now have law, she says, where it might actually be better to let a company that could otherwise have a chance of survival fail uh, with a defined benefit scheme ending up in the pension protection fund, rather than take the risk of some actions which, which might eventually be found to have lessened the chance of members enjoying a fuller portion of their benefits. Is that a fair criticism, do you think? Is that something that just requires more understanding of the guidance to alleviate, or is there something more that can be done? So, so first of all, we do recognise that actually within the, the sort of situation that you describe, that actually things can move very quickly, decisions have to be made in real time. But we do require that actually the, the pension scheme is thought about in those circumstances and decisions that are clearly documented. But what we've tried to point out in our guidance is we're not there to interrupt normal commercial activity that for organisations that are either lending or deciding not to lend to businesses that are in those kind of circumstances, provided that they're acting with normal commercial terms, then then actually they shouldn't have anything to fear from the the criminal sanctions. Clearly, they need to think about the, the requirements of the pension scheme. The pension scheme is treated fairly, and they've thought about appropriate mitigation if that's available. It may well be that there isn't any lesser impact on the scheme that can be taken and therefore it's the right decision to make. So as long as people go through the right decision making process, they look for mitigation where it's appropriate, then they shouldn't be concerned about normal commercial activities in relation to troubled employers and and the connected pension scheme. In light of the warnings, I know I said the last question was the final one on this subject, but bearing in mind the warning that people like Ms. Coder have, have put out. I mean, is the regulator, will the regulator just be keeping an eye out just in case to see if there is an, in, an uptick of, of companies which are going insolvent rather than taking actions to save themselves? And if they are, and if that does happen, will you change course? Or is it so unanticipated or so unexpected that, that there's no need to, to plan for that? 
I mean, we are in the very early days of, of the Pension Scheme Act coming into law. We are just written our policy around criminal sanctions and the activities. We set out some examples. Uh, we haven't yet got to the end of the consultation. So we do need to think about what the consultation responses are and build that into our final policy. It, it's very clear that experience will evolve. Court decisions will clarify the sort of circumstances when these sanctions will apply. So clearly the, the entire policy will evolve depending on our experience, the experience of industry, and, and we will update our policy and monitor the situation as, as things go by. Excellent. And that really was the last question on that topic. So we will now move on to the code of practice. Um, a number of new requirements is mentioned in the introduction in the new combined code of practice. Uh, one of them is the uh, one stemming from the implementation of the EU's Institutions for Occupation Retirement Provision 2 Directive, that schemes conduct their own risk assessment. That will happen annually, I think, as opposed to the regulatory requirement of triennially. Other requirements, uh, including around climate change, uh, scheme administration, governance, investments, and all the rest, could perhaps leave an extra burden on trustees' plates, especially of small schemes where the plates are rather full already. So, um, David, if you want to just begin us with this, We'll take a broad look, I think, at some of the new areas within this. But uh, just beginning with, for instance, the, the IORP2, I think that's the right pronunciation, um, implementation. Is there a reason for having it annually? Was that What was the purpose for that? But I think I was right in saying it's triennially in the, the baseline regulation for it. But. Yeah, so you're quite right. We have taken the opportunity to look at our various codes and to harmonise those into a, a single code. We think that's really helpful for trustees to have all the various requirements in a in a single uh, environment. We're also updating it and making it easily accessible on the internet. We recognise that there were some challenges where there were cross-references between codes and uh, additional information provided in blogs and statements and so on. So we have taken the opportunity to harmonise and make information more, more accessible. But we had this requirement, as you say, from the IOP in order to introduce some new requirements. There are some other, other requirements that we've taken the opportunity to update. So we have taken that opportunity. We're trying to build in both what is required under legislation, but also what we see as good practice for trustees to have good governance of their pension schemes. Uh, and you'll see some of those reflected in, in this new harmonised code. Excellent. And, and obviously, when it comes to governance... I believe it was Tony Bacon who we were speaking to from LCP, the senior consultant at LCP, who said that it looks quite prescriptive when it comes to setting standards for governance generally with all of the new measures in total. Um, how prescriptive is, is the regulator looking to be with the new code? Uh, is there a risk of being too prescriptive with this kind of thing, with all of the, especially like climate change requirements coming in as well? Uh, was it your intention to be more prescriptive than previously or does it just appear that way from the amount of content? Well, look, we are trying to be much clearer about our requirements on pension schemes. With the, the single modular code, we're taking the opportunity to make it much more accessible on the internet. So it's much easier to find the, the piece of information that you're looking for, make it much more ser uh, searchable so you can get straight there. So, you know, this is very much of our mantra being clearer, quicker, tougher. This is very much part of us being clearer of our expectations of trustees of pension schemes. Cognizant of the, the regulators, it's clearer, quicker and, and tougher. 
obviously it's one thing for the regulator to act in that way. On the subject of being quicker, though, I think it was as I partner Mike Smedley said that schemes to to comply uh, to comply, sorry, with every aspect of this new code of practice, they could need up to you know thousands of pages of documentation to prove that they are doing so. It won't be a particularly quick process for them, and especially smaller schemes which may lack the resources uh, of some of their larger uh, compatriots might struggle to take on board all of the new information. So will there be any extra help given for small schemes to ensure that they're complying, any, whether that's leeway or administrative support? Um, so look, we don't intend the single modular code to be a, be a tick list to, to go through and check off that uh, you've done anything. What we're trying to do is set out very clearly our requirements around governance. Two different things. One is we, we do accept that we need to be proportionate and our demand and, and burden on small schemes needs to be less than for larger schemes. But equally, we think all people's saving, all, all their retirement savings are equally important. And they, everyone, regardless of the size of their scheme, should expect and demand a certain level of governance that their pension schemes being looked after, that their savings are safe and that their savings will be there for when they want them in later life. So, yes, we, we understand the regulatory burden and we want it to be proportionate, but equally we think that there's a certain minimum level of governance that every member should expect and be entitled to. Of course. Excellent. Well, that brings us to the final subject then. We'll do a quick look ahead, I think, now we've got you, as to what the regulated priorities will be coming um, through the year. So uh, you can take it away on this one. Um, what, what do you think is, is your, going to be top of your list of things to do now from this point onwards for the rest of the year? Yeah, we've we've just published our, our strategy. We'll shortly be publishing our corporate plan of the activities that will be taking place over the, over the next year or so. We're very excited. We're just about to launch our climate strategy in the next week or two. And then at the end of April, early May, we'll publish our diversity and inclusion strategy. Both of those things very dear to my heart. Clearly coming out of the Pension Schemes Act, there are a lot of things for us to do. The powers we've talked about, the introduction of uh, CDC authorization regime, introduction of the dashboard. But we've also got other things that are going on. Super funds are still waiting to come into operation and we're beginning to see some innovative financial structures being used to help pension schemes to get to buy out more efficiently. And we're looking at those very closely. So lots of activity coming out of the Pension Schemes Act, lots of work for us to do around implementing our climate and and dni strategy uh, and also you know we are still in the early days post brexit we still haven't quite emerged from the pandemic and lockdown so that may also bring us a number of things to do over the coming months plenty to be getting on with well that all sounds like i'm going to be kept in gainful employment writing about it all so i suppose i should thank you for my continued employment and i thank you also very much for joining us that does bring us to the end of the program so thank you again david for joining us thank you to our listeners for joining us we will see you again in two weeks time normally being a little extra might be a bit much but not when it comes to healthcare. that's why united healthcare's health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.